You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Our focus this morning will be on verses 3 through 10. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are not only as men finite, measured in our intelligence, insight, wisdom, capabilities. We are sinners, and though sinners saved by grace, we know there's not simply our natural limitations, but limitations due because of sin. In understanding and beyond this, this morning it's our intent to peer back into what we cannot fathom into eternity past, into what was before time, into the depths of the Trinity. And so I pray we would do so with reverence. We would do so with caution. But we would do so with joy insofar as You have spoken and opened up to us 
something of the eternal fountain from which our redemption flows. And that, Father, like Paul, we would erupt in praise to You for it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. When studying the covenants, one asks, where do we begin? Or they might ask, when do we begin? And actually, if you ask when we begin, you've, you've already flubbed the question because you really need to begin when there was no when. If you, if you answer, well, where do we begin? Well, begin in the beginning. Well, if you begin in the beginning, you've begun too late. As you take up the Bible, you encounter the covenants in this way. You, you do begin at the beginning. But if you're doing a study of the covenants, we need to go back before there was a beginning. And admittedly, when we do so, we're peering back into the depths of the eternal counsels of the triune God. There is mystery here. We should proceed with reverence. We should proceed with caution. But proceed we should because our God has spoken. It is as though our God has cracked the door to allow His children to overhear an adult conversation about plans that were before we came into existence. Following the Reformation, covenant theologians uh, began to speak of what has been called the Pactum Salutis, that is the Pact of Salvation, or better brought into our English, referred to as the Covenant of Redemption, or the Eternal Covenant, or some have called it the Council of Redemption, the Council of Peace. Uh, it's been standard fare in, in covenant theology, Reformed theology, to refer to this covenant of redemption in eternity past. Michael Browns at Keel give the following definition for this covenant. It is the covenant established in eternity between the Father who gives the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect and requires of Him the conditions for their redemption and the Son who voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions and the Spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. Now, the Prince of the Puritans, John Owen, was one of the key figures, probably the chief one, who argued for understanding this intra-Trinitarian eternal agreement, this, this agreement within the Trinity, rooted in eternity, for understanding it as a covenant. And thus seeing that all of God's covenant dealings with man are rooted in God's covenant within Himself. And Owen was a congregationalist, and thus he was a major influence in what is known as the Savoy Declaration. You're familiar, no doubt, with the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you know the 1689 Baptist Confession, what is less well known to us is what lies in between, and that was the Savoy Declaration. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, verse, uh, section 1, reads as follows. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, 
to be the mediator between God and man, the priest, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now the Savoy Declaration makes this alteration to that first portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to a covenant made between them both. And so whenever our Baptist forefathers set out to make their revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Second Baptist Confession, the 1689 Confession, whenever they set out to make their own, they followed the Savoy Declaration at this point. And so you have that phrase that this was according to a covenant made between them both. And even so, there has long also been testimony within Reformed theology that is hesitant to label these eternal relations within the Trinity as a covenant. As far as how they've determined to redeem man, to label that as a covenant. And I count myself among them. I'm conservative, I'm apprehensive, I'm hesitant to say that that was a covenant. And yet, I want to say this, I have a greater affinity for those who argue for a covenant of redemption than for those who want to spend their time saying, shouldn't call that a covenant. And the reason is because Owen does see something there. I think our Baptist forefathers, the the Congregationalists who put this in the Savoy Declaration, they're seeing something there. I'm just hesitant to label it a covenant. I'm going to use the terminology Scripture does here, and I don't see enough to give me grounds to go further than calling it an eternal purpose, plan, will, a mystery that's unfolding. But nonetheless, there is something there. And the something there is strongly covenantal in several ways. And so I, while I don't want to call it a covenant, I have more enjoyment reading Owen arguing that it is a covenant than reading someone who says, no, that's not a covenant, just because rather than spending all of our time saying why technically I don't think this is a covenant, I would rather reflect on everything that is here that lies underneath and behind and from which all of God's covenant dealings with man spring than spend my time arguing about the correct terminology. So if you don't think that Scripture allows us to speak of an eternal covenant of redemption, it's my prayer that you would see that even so, you cannot start at the beginning if you're going to study the covenants. You have to go back before there was a beginning in Ephesians 1 gives us just such a glimpse of what lies behind God's covenant dealings with man. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 10. And instead of, in in verses 3 through 14, instead of what Paul normally does after his standard greeting, instead of this uh, portion of thanksgiving for God's covenant dealings, uh, for thanksgiving for for uh, what God is doing in these persons that he's writing to. Instead of that, he erupts in praise. Verses 3 through 14 are a single, uninterrupted sentence in the original language. 202 words of uninterrupted Trinitarian praise. 
I would venture that outside the words of praise that we find on the lips of our incarnate Lord speaking of His Father, these are the highest praise to God in the highest that we find in Holy Script. I might even dare to say that this may well be the greatest sentence in the greatest book. What is Paul's aim with this sentence? Well, you can see a theological focal point throughout the sentence that the purpose of everything God is doing here is for the praise of His glorious grace, we're told, in essence, three times. And so, the theological point is the very point that Paul is not just speaking of, but he's doing in this sentence. He's he's doing what he's speaking of. He's essentially saying, praise be to God for, or praise be to God, excuse me, who has graciously saved us to the praise of His gracious salvation. Praise be to God. Which God? The God who's graciously saved us. Why has He graciously saved us? To the praise of His gracious salvation. In praising God here, you'll see Paul plunge into the mysterious depths of the Trinity in eternity past and soar to heavenly heights. And if you are in Christ, if you know this 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 that he's speaking of here, I don't know how you cannot but be carried up with him as we examine this sentence. Paul blesses the God who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The praise that Paul is erupting with towards the Father is centered, is thoroughly permeated is abounding with Christ. Fifteen times he's mentioned, in either by pronoun or name or title, fifteen times he's spoken of throughout this single sentence. And eleven of those times, you have the phrase, in Christ or in Him. So all of this redemption and blessedness that comes to us, comes to us in Christ. And so you can see why in particular that whenever he blesses God, he addresses the God he blesses as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in contrast, he's just said, he's our Father in verse 2. But in this particular sentence of praise, he's reflecting and thinking on God the Father as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And consider two things about this blessedness that's ours in Christ. One, it's covenantal, and two, it's comprehensive. Now, where did I get that it was uh, covenantal? Well, remember last week I argued that our union with Christ, and it's in union with Christ that we have all this blessedness. We see that here. That our union with Christ is a covenantal one. One thing I'm earnest for you to do is when you read the Bible, see covenant whenever the author doesn't have to spell it all out for you. You start thinking in covenantal terms. Whenever you read in Christ, you start thinking, that means covenantally, I'm in union with Christ. And if you are struggling to see it, remember that the cup of salvation that we drink from is signified at this table 
And of this cup, Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So our union with Christ is covenantal and our communion with Christ is covenantal. And in this covenantal union with Christ, our blessedness is comprehensive. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And by spiritual and heavenly, you might be tempted to think ethereal, intangible, floaty. I don't think you should go there. Paul will soon speak of the Holy Spirit given to us as the guarantee of our inheritance. That inheritance being part of this blessedness that we get in Christ. And that inheritance is very real and tangible as you read throughout the Scriptures. It involves a new earth. When you read spiritual and heavenly blessings, you need to think first source, and then you can think the nature of those blessings insofar as you're thinking heavenly and spiritual in contrast to that which is earthly and passing and fading in the same way that your resurrection body is said to be a spiritual body and not an earthly one. That's the way you should think spiritual and heavenly here. Now recall that in our study of Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 we saw that we're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise, but rather we enjoy the fullness of everything those covenants anticipated in Christ. And as Paul tells the Corinthians, in Christ all the promises of God find their yes. All the promises find their yes in Him. So whenever Paul says that we are the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places... That blessedness is covenantal and being covenantal, it is comprehensive. And so, unchecked, unmeasured praise is the proper response to this grace of God that is so comprehensive. But even among those who long to praise God for His redemption and salvation that's being spoken of here. Among those who long to do so, praise is choked and checked for many reasons, but at least two that are brought into relief by our passage. First, praise is choked because many deny two of the chief focal points that lie underneath Paul's praise here. God's choosing and predestining are skipped over. Oh, we'll rejoice in His Forgiveness and His redemption, but the choosing and the predestining make Him uncomfortable, so either deny it, skip over it. So if praise were a punching bag, punching bag, punches are pulled. If praise were the throttle on a rocket, the praise is throttled. It doesn't soar like it's meant to. And second, if these concepts are not denied, they are diluted. Something like you're working outside on a blistering 109 degree August day doing yard work and your spouse fixes you the most refreshing homemade lemonade, ice cold, 
sits it outside, but then there's some kind of distraction, something happens, you're unaware the lemonade is there until you come to it much later, and all the ice is melted. And so it's both watered down and it's warm. And trying to get praise out of watered down, warm, choosing and predestining is very hard. And so we want to take it as it is right here. We want to plunge into the very depths that Paul does so that our praise soars as his does. These are the depths that underlie God's covenant dealings with us. And understanding this causes our praise to rise high. So unashamedly, let us glory as Paul does, that we are blessed even as the Father chose us in Christ. Verse 4. Ours was an arranged marriage. Our union with Christ, our covenantal union with Christ, is an arranged marriage. The most mind source for arguing for a covenant of redemption, outside of our text that we have this morning, is the Gospel of John. And since we plan on following the study of the covenants with a study of the Gospel of John, I didn't want to go there. But nonetheless, to get some idea of how this you're chosen in Christ, this arranged marriage. Uh, the, the, one of the major points in John that's looked at are all those texts that speak of the Son being given a people. So John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. So Jesus came to do God's will, and God's will means not losing any of those that He's been given by the Father. The giving clearly precedes the coming. Before He came, He was given. And the reason He came was to redeem those that He was given. John 17 alone contains a plethora of such references. So I'll just give them to you in bits and phrases. John 17, 2. Jesus says, You, the Father, have given Him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. John 17, 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 17.8 I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. John 17.24 Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Those given to Christ are those who were chosen in Christ. Whenever we think of union with Christ, we often think of living union or what's sometimes called mystical union with Christ, wherein upon our regeneration by faith, 
The Holy Spirit puts us into such union with Christ so that His righteousness is counted as ours. So we think of that living union of Christ that comes into being. But before that happens, and the reason that that happens, is because there is a union of election where you are chosen in the Son, where He is your federal head and representative as Adam was. Now He is. He represents you. You are covenantally in union with Him. And what you see is that this covenantal union that you have with Christ was one that was determined by the Father before the foundation of the world. Not only is this marriage arranged, it was arranged before you were born. It was arranged before you were born again. It was arranged before you were born, period. It not only precedes your genesis, it precedes the genesis. God chose a bride for His Son before He brought that bride into existence. Whenever there was nothing but the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, your covenantal union with Christ was arranged. And the purpose for which you were chosen in Christ, verse 4, is that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And a striking covenantal image to speak of this same purpose is soon used as a metaphor by Paul in chapter 5 in the most intimate and glorious of ways. Chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church into beauty. He loves her beautiful. He doesn't love her because she's beautiful. His love makes her so. He loves her beautiful for Himself. Marriage is meant to mirror this glory. And so Paul goes on in chapter 5 to quote Genesis 2, and he adds a comment. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the quotation. And he adds this comment. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the covenantal union of man and wife testifies to the covenantal union of Christ and His bride. And when you read, this mystery is profound, the mystery of a husband and a wife, two becoming one. And he's saying, I'm saying it refers to Christ and His church. You don't need to think that God is trying to tell you what's it like that Christ loves His church. Oh, I'll use marriage as an analogy. No, He's saying Christ and His bride, that's the thing that happens first, and marriage is written 
as a metaphor of something that pre-existed it to testify to it and speak to it. That's the way it works. Christ is the covenantal head of His church and He loves her into beauty. And God arranged that covenant union between Christ and His bride before the foundation of the world. Or we could say, He arranged this covenant union for the sake of covenant communion. He arranged covenant union, Christ and His bride put into union for the sake of covenant communion that He might present her to Himself holy and without blemish. They might know and love one another. And further, in love, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ predestined us, verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's a beautiful sentence with one detrimental flaw. Jesus didn't become a man to enable us to become sons of God. Jesus became, the Son of God became man to make men sons of God. Specifically those predestined to be sons of God. And this predestining act was done according to the purpose of His will. And there's an emotive element to that word purpose, that, or an affectional element, maybe I should put it that way, to this word purpose that's lost in translation. The Christian standard, the, um, the New Revised Standard Version, the King James all have, according to the good pleasure of His will. You need both of them. It's a purpose and a pleasure. It doesn't, His adoption, the Father's adoption of us through Christ isn't just His determination. It is that, but it's His delight. It's His delightful determination. It's His determining delight. For God, the two are wed together. In Psalm 115, we read that our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. His doings and His delights are identical. When was God pleased to adopt us? The predestining necessarily happens whenever we were chosen in Christ. And that, as we've read, happens before the foundation of the world. God's covenantal redemption of man, you see, He's not ad-libbing the script. He's not speaking extemporaneously. It was written out beforehand. He spoke all into existence. He upholds all by the word of His power. And all is happening according to His word, His script, if you will, determined before the foundation of the world. Through Isaiah, He tells us, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. Revelation gives us some insight into this purpose and how it's set out from before the foundation of the world whenever... It speaks about those who have the, the beast, those that the beast has authority over. And it tells you who they're not. Who are those that the beast does not have authority over? 
It says that He has authority over everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So there are those that He has authority over, and then there's this group that He does not. And who comprises it? Everyone whose name was written before the foundation of the world. Who are those? Those that He wrote down as in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. And that brings us to a second purpose statement in verse 6. The first statement was to present us holy and blameless before Him. Verse 6, He's done this to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. It was God's purpose pleasure. It was His delight to redeem us so that we might praise or delight in Him. And it's striking that it's this particular place that He chooses to refer to Christ as the Beloved. Christ is referred to 15 times throughout the sentence. But it's at this point in the sentence that He refers to Him as the Beloved. It's God's pleasure to redeem you, to take pleasure in this grace, praising it. And this grace with which you've blessed, been blessed is a grace that comes to you in the Beloved. So remember, whenever our Son, whenever our Savior, God's Son, whenever He was fulfilling all righteousness for us, whenever He was acting as our covenant head, He comes to the waters to be baptized of John to fulfill all righteousness for us. And as He comes up out of the waters, the Spirit descends on Him, and God declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I think you can see that it's God's pleasure to adopt you as a son in the son because he's pleased with his son and because it's his pleasure to make much of his son. Why all this redemption? To the praise of his glorious grace, which means the grace that comes to us in the son. The father does this to elevate and magnify his son. Oh, what love that the Father would adopt us as sons in the Son. And what love that the Father would put us into such covenantal union with his beloved so that we could refer to him as our beloved. What the Father is choosing and determining and planning here is a covenantal union that puts lover's language into our mouths so that we can say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all this is in Christ. 
And then Paul says that we have redemption by His blood, verse 7. In Christ, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ to God Himself. By the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So naturally, we go from redemption through His blood to the forgiveness of our trespasses. And all of this is according to the riches of the Father's grace. And this isn't grace that just comes to us from an abundant store. Many a philanthropist give away thousands and even millions because it helps them. It doesn't make a dent in their wealth. It just helps them keep more of their wealth. But what we read here is that our God, out of His inexhaustible riches, lavishes this grace on us. We don't receive little stimulus checks from rulers going trillions and trillions in debt we receive out of God's real and inexhaustible riches, lavish grace. And it's not a wasteful lavishing, it's a wise lavishing. It's not insensible, it's insightful. And the wisdom and insight that are involved here are one that make known to us, verse 8, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan, mystery, Will, purpose, plan, an eternal will, purpose, and plan that predate the beginning. Listen to how Paul speaks of these things to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.8 He commands Timothy to share in the sufferings, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he goes on to describe God in this way. He is the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Your covenantal salvation is one that was given to you before you were. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In chapter 3, Paul will elaborate on this unfolding of God's covenant purposes as a mystery speaking of how the Gentiles have been brought in as fellow heirs, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the promises that are contained within God's covenants. And he said that this mystery that was hidden for ages in God has been made known. And then he adds this comment concerning the revelation of this mystery in chapter 3, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whenever we look at the new covenant and how it comes to full light, everything was promised in all these other covenants, and it comes to full light in Revelation, the mystery of the gospel, the new covenant in Christ, we read that this was according to His eternal purpose. The covenants are not deals made by slick litigators on the fly. They are not a lesser God's temporal response 
They are the Almighty's eternal resolve. This plan was that in the fullness of time, the fullness would be united in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Galatians 4 speaks of this fullness of time and how it relates to our adoption. 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as sons, we are heirs, fellow heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Having already received the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of this inheritance, this inheritance that we come to, we come to in Christ as He is Lord over all. The promise to Abraham swells to be the world. He's heir of the world. Romans chapter 4. How is it that you're heir of the world? Well, you're put into covenant union with the one who is head over all things. New creation. It's astounding to see the dots connected whenever Paul's praise here turns into a prayer for the Ephesians later in this chapter. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, Paul says, I don't cease asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So all things are put under Christ's feet and then Christ as head over all is given to the church. What an arranged covenantal union this is that the Father gives His bride, such as us, that comes into pristine glory and beauty, not because of us, but because of all of His doing. But not only is the Son given such a bride, look at the bridegroom you're given. As head, He's not just given to you, church. He's given to you as head over all things. And so you can you see the, the, this, in this covenantal union as you're chosen in Christ, why it is that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why all the covenantal promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Paul prays that this Ephesian church might know more profoundly this grace that's enveloped them in Christ. Why? Because the reason why this grace enveloped and flooded them and is lavished on them is to the praise 
of His glorious grace. Here, then, are the covenantal implications of our text. It is in the new covenant that we are put into union with Christ as the new Adam, such that we are a new humanity and heirs of the new earth. And so while I do not want to call what we're peering into back in eternity past, God's eternal counsel, His eternal purpose, His eternal plan, while I'm hesitant to call that a covenant, what I want you to see what was planned and what was willed is covenantal in scope in its entirety. Your union with Christ, your being chosen in Him, is covenantal. The new covenant was that eternal purpose. It was that eternal plan, that eternal will. And then, this sets you up to to really understand the covenants throughout. So we begin next with the Adamic covenant. We'll soon go on to see the Noahic covenant mirroring that Adamic covenant. But in Adam, you have a man made in God's image, said to be God's son in a lesser way, and he's given dominion. And he's the federal head and representative of all humanity, covenantally, so that whenever he falls, he and his posterity fall with him, and his dominion is cursed. But in the new covenant, again, in the new covenant, We have the new Adam, and there's a new humanity who are heirs of a new creation. This new covenant is planned, purposed, and willed by our God, and it was planned, purposed, and willed when He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'm hesitant to call such a plan, purpose, and will a covenant, but that eternal plan, purpose, and will lies behind all the covenants that reach their fullness in Christ the new covenant. And because God's mighty covenantal redemption is rooted in such depths in eternity past, and it soars to such heavenly heights, may our praise be unchecked, unthrottled, unmeasured, without bounds. God has lavished His grace upon us. May we pour forth praise. Our redemption was planned before the beginning so that our praise might not only be without end, but without measure. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him covenantally and comprehensively to be blessed before the foundation of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, praise be to You. All of grace. Nothing that we have done. All of grace. And that you would put such sinners as we in union with such a Savior as Christ to be conformed to His image. To be in union with Him 
such that we're made like Him, such that we can most fully and deeply and eternally enjoy communion with Him. Just to think of how the covenantal union of man and wife becoming one flesh is a mystery meant to testify to the delights that are ours eternally in this union. That you arrange this Father before we ever, ever were. What solid ground we stand on to pour forth praise without restraint to you. You are worthy. And so loosen our tongues freshly today. Grant Your Spirit to teach us something enlightening our minds to know the hope to which we've been called, the riches, the immeasurable greatness of Your power towards us, the depths of our redemption and salvation. And Father, we cry out for any here, for our children, It's our prayer that they have been chosen in Christ and that we would see their redemption. That we would be used of you in heralding this gospel knowing it's the power of God to salvation. Because Father, seeing it afresh causes us to pour out praise. And we know that is not just your simply your will, it's your your eternal will. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.